1: Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. No housekeeping to do this week. We're getting straight on the road. Our destination this week is the state of Maryland. As one of the first 13 colonies that would eventually come to make up the United States, it's no surprise that the state of Maryland has its fair share of legends. There's a sea monster that lurks within the Chesapeake Bay. A huge winged lizard out of European folklore, plenty of buildings that play host to all kinds of spirits, and a surprising number of haunted bridges. But do even a cursory dig into terrifying legends of Maryland, and there's one figure that seems to loom large above the rest. But as with any good story, before we dive into the shadows, we need to meet the unfortunate souls on which those shadows were cast. In early November of 1971, sixteen-year-old April Edwards, her dog Ginger, and a number of April's friends were spending the late afternoon outside near her home off a of Fletchertown Road, a winding stretch of pavement that weaves beneath a dense canopy of trees, a popular and picturesque drive, to be sure. The leaves were starting to turn, burning with orange and red hues that matched the colors of the setting sun. And the air was cool and crisp. Dinner time was approaching, and the shadows were getting long. But as the girls' conversation turned to heading home for supper, they were interrupted by strange, loud noises from the nearby woods. The rustling and crashing of a large animal, snapping branches and tree limbs, as it pushed through the foliage, followed by a strange, squealing cry that sent shards of ice shooting down their spines. And if they stared through the trees, they could just make out the form of something huge and hairy walking upright deep within the forest. Understandably, the girls chose not to wait around for the thing to emerge from the forest. They quickly decided to go their separate ways, and April called for her dog, Ginger. But there was no reply. She couldn't see or hear her dog anywhere. With the noise and excitement, April had lost track of her. And now darkness was creeping in in earnest. She searched for Ginger, whistling, calling her name, pleading with her to come back. But found nothing heard nothing. April ran back home and, through sobs, told her parents that Ginger had gone missing. It was dark by then, and her parents did their best to assure her that, even though she was young, Ginger was a smart dog and would find her way home. But the next morning, when Ginger still hadn't materialized, the family began to worry in earnest and set out to search for her, It was a hunt that quickly turned from minutes to hours to days, fear clawing ever more feverishly at the pits of their stomachs. They enlisted the help of others, too, neighbors and friends. Ray Hayden, John Hayden, and Willie Geen were among them. The three young men searched the ditches and trees along nearby Fletchertown Road. But a few days in, As the sky began to take on that familiar red glow and the shadows to deepen, they too encountered something in the woods. Something that clearly wasn't the lost dog. A tall creature of unnatural proportions, covered in coarse, dark hair, and walking upright on its hind legs. As they watched it, not daring to move, it tipped its horned head back and let out a piercing shriek, a high-pitched, otherworldly animal cry that echoed through the stillness of the night. The next day, the boys, their boldness bolstered by the safety of sunlight, returned to the area where they had seen the creature. And there they found Ginger, her poor little lifeless body, her head torn off and nowhere to be found. The story not only made the local paper, but the Washington Post as well. But it wasn't an isolated incident either. It turns out the three boys, and April Edwards and her friends, weren't the only ones to encounter the creature. Reports of an animal-like creature that walks on its hind legs were increasing along Fletchertown Road and local reporter Karen Hosler knew exactly who or what they were dealing with. This was no human and no natural creature either. Poor Ginger had fallen victim to an axe-wielding abomination, half man and half goat, an abomination known, unsurprisingly, as the Goat Man. The Prince George's County Goatman has enough origin stories to make your head spin. Some more interesting than others. There's the fairly simple and tame story of a lonely goat farmer who loses his mind and turns homicidal after his animals are killed by mischievous teens. There's some who believe the Goatman is just one of the many mythical beasts that hide in the darkened places of the earth. Perhaps of the same family as Bigfoot. Or even maybe a minion of the devil. Or there's the more complex story of a scientist working at the nearby Beltsville Research Agriculture Center who either accidentally or on purpose, depending on who you ask, blends his own DNA with that of a goat to wind up a Brundle Fly like half human monstrosity possessed only of an insatiable lust for blood and violence. A rumor it was prevalent enough for the USDA facility to issue a formal statement denying any such occurrence or connection. Over the years, Goatman has really tried to keep things fresh, too, switching up his act from time to time. In the 1950s, for example, he was a regular haunt at the old Lover's Lane, preying on hormone-ridden teenagers parked in their cars for a little private time. Jumping on their roofs and scraping his axe down the sides of their vehicles, even luring one would be Don Juan into the forest, only to decapitate him and hang his head from the trees for the authorities to find later. In 1962, the goat man was said to be responsible for the deaths of 14 hikers, 12 kids, and two adult chaperones. The group had, apparently, strayed too close to the goat man's home. Unintentional or not, his reaction to trespassing was a little... extreme. According to a survivor of the ordeal, he'd cleaved the victims to bits with an axe, screaming noises, only the devil himself would make. Once police arrived, the group had been reduced to a gory trail of half-eaten limbs, and bloody smears leading to a nearby cave. More recently, he's been said to frequent a house in the woods behind St. Mark the Evangelist Middle School. In the thirty years the house has been there, people claim to have seen the goat man stalking in and around it, and found bones, knives, saws, and leftover meals inside no matter what his origin story or favored method of mayhem though there's no question the goatman is out for blood and he's got an axe to grind let's hear some fiction our first story for the evening comes from andrea criz andrea criz writes from cambridge massachusetts her stories have also appeared in future visions volume 2 nature recompose and daily science fiction. Join me, children of the night, for Andrea Kriz's Rainbow Crows Heroes, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: hearing ain't great no more, the caped cochlea says, but I can hear into Clocks' office for sure. There's going to be a selection tonight. Don't worry, ferret whispers. It'll only be the old, the sick. Ruben rings his mop, like the words, out of his mind. Gossip from the workbench behind him continues to dribble through anyway, accompanied by the whir of sewing machines, the snap of bitten threads. Human incinerator, who burns the bodies, says they take you to a building just like de-lousing, except out of the shower heads come zeta rays which rip you apart at the molecular level. Well, better than getting deported to a parallel dimension, frostbitten for eternity, anyhow. Boots stomp toward them as a watery ellipse floats into existence out of the concrete beneath Ruben's feet. And 389 here with his circles, Bombix hoots locking the window with his one remaining mangled wing. Better cut that out before the guards see you. Geometer, the man scrubbing next to Ruben corrects. 389, Bombix booms. He picks up the disc and shatters it like a frisbee against the wall. What'd you do to land in here again? Give one of the Stormies a paper cut? Not all powers are for fighting. Geometer says quietly, Before the war, I used it to teach children, to help them visualize the shapes in their minds. It means half the rations, of course, working the sweatshop. But Ruben prefers bombics, mopping face-to-face with empty storm-chaser uniforms, as opposed to occupied ones while slogging shells. Or worse, the assembly line, elbow-deep in space rock, phosphorus, toxic waste... No, not toxic waste after that worker fell into a vat and stopped a bus with her bare hands. Whatever the Stormies are packing into their drones, killing them with these days. What's his power, you think? One of the seamstresses wonders as Ruben shuffles past. Probably animal speak or some useless junk. This is a C-tier camp here. And they, the C-tiers of the C-tiers, depowered and put to work, lucky them because even sea tiers have their uncontrollable upper tiers, capable of bending plants to their will or slipping out of any earthly restraint, good only for vivisection. His bunkmate, Doc Yucca, won't shut up about Hyacinth Girl's brain, pickled in a jar in the basement of the surgery and research ward where he... holds scalpels, that's all, he insists. He keeps looking at those birds. Ruben keeps his head down as Bombix looms closer, his comb-like antennae twitching. Think it can turn into one? Bombix sneers. Is that what you're planning? Flying out of here? They'll zap us all if anyone escapes, two-four-one. You know that. Ruben takes the hit, the whip right in the face. Blood drips from the gash on his forehead onto the sudsy floor. Bombix used to have four wings. Ruben saw the comics. The storm chaser's lopped off three, and only let him keep the last because he begged and begged. Bombix lets him up, finally. Ruben glances out the window and raises his hand. What? Bombix snarls. Haven't had enough? Bathroom, Ruben says softly. Five minutes. rest of you back to work. On the workshop roof, a dark shape preens almost blended into the night. Ruben takes a handful of bread out of his jacket lining and holds it up high. It flutters down and snatches the crumbs out of his palm, all the while staring at him with its beady, coal-like eyes. Just an ordinary bird. He slumps with relief. "'I see the way they beat you,' the crow says. "'They're animals, Ruben.' "'We're all animals.' "'You're no animal.' when, as a teen, he dared interfere with El Corazon's execution, freeing the prisoner tied up in the back of the cantina where he bussed bust tables. The drug lord's goons broke his legs and left him in the wasteland for dead. Crow spirit came to him as he sweated feverishly, half buried in sand. Merge with me, she whispered. Unlike the shadows he'd tossed cigarette butts to in the parking lot, her feathers gleamed against the dawn. They drank from gold-touched oases flew through the desert, bringing light with an ever-burning flame. And he did it all without a single complaint, without even thinking of it much. He was young. The storm chasers drew the spirit from him with their machine and held the light against him until he burned and fell powerless to the ground. But at that point Ruben welcomed the ashes, the soot that seared his skin and hair gray, as if it could free him, a manifestation of his innermost thoughts. As his body aches now in the breeze of the crow's wings. He deserved to be severed from Crow Spirit. The camp, Bombix, all of this. If only he could take her place in the sun machine too. As they dragged him away, he heard Crow Spirit screaming, even as the cage sparked with siphoned energy. The first test light bulbs on the ceiling flickered to life. Back at the barracks, he organizes an extra cup of soup trades it for a bit of makeup to cover the wound, then loans out his jacket for a lesson on the right way to put it on. Hoping, as he squints at his reflection in a rusty pipe, that its new wearer won't get selected tonight. Otherwise he'll never get it back. Just in time for the door to thunder open. The guards, storm chaser men, swarm in. Soldiers injected with spinal fluid isolated from prisoners in the research compound, Doc Yucca told Ruben once like their dogs, all their super-strength gained with none of the pesky intelligence. Out! they scream, lashing left and right. Out! Dusk. Ruben still feels the rhythm in his gut despite the glare of searchlights in his face. The posters papering the barracks they pass on the way to the square proclaiming the time. Half past midnight. It's been half past midnight for the past week straight. Ruben barely dares look at them. Ten people. Clocks had shot last week alone for mentioning the darkness shrouding the desert, the absence of morning, the utter failure of the sun machine. Even from the back of the crowd, as they're made to kneel, Ruben can make out the thin form of the commandant on stage. By the bloody bandages around his fists, he's been watching clock faces again, smashing in any that dare tick past his decreed time. Hence the nickname. As I'm sure you're aware, Clocks rasps, one of your kind melted a bus in Tucson yesterday. The going rate nowadays is three to one, so we'll round it up to forty of you. First up, 473. No. The man next to Ruben whimpers as the guards grab him. A new arrival, his skin still pales in the shape of a domino mask around his eyes. No, no, no. He can't help him, Reuben tells himself. Despite what Crow Spirit whispered in his ear this night the war began. You could be S-tier. In his broken-down pickup truck as he hammered the radio, desperately trying to piece the words from the static, as he drove over the border, Double S. Triple S. Lady Atomica dropping the Pantex plant stockpile on the U.S.-Mexico wall would be nothing compared to him. S tier. Ha! He couldn't even help one measly kid. She couldn't have been more than nine or ten when she came up to him in the open-air market, by the cowhead skull in the sunflower stall, peddling origami cranes. Somehow, she enlisted Ruben's help. Some kind of game, he thought as he folded to the light of a single candle beneath his tarp, until she confided that at a thousand she'd be able to bring her parents back to life. Which one of you is summoning these damn things? Clock screeches. Cut it out, or I'll zap the lot of you. In long, hesitating movements, shuddering, Ruben raises his head. Crows fill the saguaros outside the barbed wire, choke the air with their black dissonance. Each sweep of the searchlights dislodges more of them from above, like flakes of night dripping free. They carpet the tinny roofs and the dirt square until he almost dares not breathe. Leave, Ruben pleads. We don't want to leave, they beat with their wings. We want to help you, Ruben. I don't want you to help me, I want you to leave. Thorny claws dig into his shoulder, a beak burrows into his hair. We follow the stench of war, they caw, their words a fragment, an echo, only a shadowy rasp of the spirit's melodious voice. We followed it and we found you. Even after the severing, he'd remained connected to her in flashes, fever dreams. He'd seen how Crow Spirit had twisted and writhed against the diamond mesh of the sun machine until she'd torn herself asunder and free. How the first bloody giblets had melted into the skin of the young scientist on the observation deck. Moving on to rats after a squad of soldiers had met the same fate, wriggling through ventilation shafts while the storm chasers flooded the plant with gas. Once outside, the crows. Even as each new host proved unsuitable, plummeting out of the sky, the spirit split itself further, claimed more. Her entire consciousness simultaneously shattered and condensed into one word. Ruben! Ruben! He, and he alone, could quell their hunger. For weeks he'd woken to nightmares of their wings beating closer, pathetically hoped the camp would finish him off before then. Gunshots crack around them inconsequential as clocks' muffled shouts, the spent bullets that clatter to the ground soft as rain. Each hole they tear through the swarm instantly floods and writhes with more feathered darkness, cawing. Now Ruben can make out the deluge of their many-colored eyes. Why do the humans shoot us, Ruben? They caw. Why do they rob us of our due? We hunger, Ruben. We wander in darkness and hunger for flame. And you who was supposed to feed us, failed. He was doing fine, lying low, drowning out crow spirits pleas with liquor, until he met the kid. Focusing on his job, he told himself. Two or three hours off dawn at most, only zigzagging the sunrise when he hit the bacanora too hard. Then the storm chasers rolled up to Nogales, that produce-flooded border town, looking for him and finding her instead. Their slave, an A-tier with magnetism manipulation, who wasn't even being mind controlled, and a pack of superpower sniffing hounds under her command, levitated Ruben's truck into the air. Under it huddled the kid, hiding where Ruben had told her to, clutching one of her paper cranes. What's your power, sweetie? She laughed. Super speed? Let's see. Now face to face with the mad swarm the crow spirit had become, something inside Ruben breaks. He could have done something. As the first hound ripped at the kid's sleeve, she started to glow. The others whined, shying away from the heat. And the A-tear stomped down on her throat. At that moment, Ruben had had all of the power of the other world at his fingertips. Why didn't he realize? No. He did. Felt Crow Spirit straining at her sooty threads, in his mind, tighten them instead. He was afraid. He'd learned that fear at age nineteen, trembling in front of El Corazon. Because of his fear, he'd fled across the border. Because of his fear, the kid died. And Crow Spirit. The two of them were sick even before the storm chasers caught up to them, fighting like wolves in the same body. Go! Go! he told her, possess one more worthy. Yet up until the sun machine had severed them, she'd believed in him. I know I have not chosen wrong. Her last sane words. Let me make it up to you, Ruben says. The crows settle on his back, his outstretched arms. Screams erupt, mingling with a piercing pain in his ear as the rest of the murder mirrors their movements. Lift the layers of my flesh one by one, Ruben commands. Take back what is yours. Tear at me and tear at me until I am nothing. That would be fitting. Hey, bird brain! A disc ricochets off the crow's neck, sending it squawking away. Geometer impales another with the end of a thin spear. A line, Ruben realizes, infinitely sharp. A bit niche, that power. The caped cochlea coughs beside him, but it'll do. Leave me, Ruben whispers. Not a chance. I deserve to... Less moping, Superferret barks. More bird control! Crows hurricane around them and Superferret leaps off Ruben's shoulder, clawing onto the nearest bird midair. He sinks his teeth into where wing meets body. Ruben makes out wisps of spirit escaping from the gash before... Like sharks scented to blood in the water, the others swarm them. Without thinking, Ruben raises his hand. The birds settle onto the nearest storm-chaser man instead. He hurries forward and catches Superferret, plastered with the mangled, but now otherwise normal, remains of a crow. With infinite relief, he feels his furred body twitching in his arms. Geometer grabs his shoulder and steers them toward a group of prisoners huddled under another one of his shapes, a shimmering curve. Think you can short it out with those birds? Geometer asks, pointing at the barbed wire. They tend to fixate on... living things, Ruben tries to explain. Only to be drowned out by the squeal of wheels. He ducks just in time for a storm-chaser jeep to burst overhead. It crashes head-on into the wire, vines writhing out of the ground beneath it. The electric fence sparks under their weight collapsing as tiny purple flowers blossom from its tangled mass. "'Get in!' Bombix yells, leaning on the horn to scare off the crows that have already settled around him. "'Come on!' Ruben takes his hand, coming face to face with a jar in Doc Yucca's arms. Around him others thump, balancing on fenders and clinging onto the frame when they run out of room. "'Isn't that... Hyacinth girl's brain?' Doc Yucca finishes, "'Yeah. Source of all her power. Why do you think they kept it?' "'Little did they know,' he adds with a small smile, stroking the glass as they surge forward. "'The other half was in me.'" As soon as the sound of tearing souls fades, they putter to a stop, in a field of sun-starved fiddlenecks and poppies, the grass gently sloping upward toward a sky island under their wheels. "'All right,' Ruben says gruffly, breaking the silence. He steps down from his seat, jabs a thumb at the mountain. You're free. Better scram before the stormies catch wind. They'll have their hands full with that camp, Ruben doesn't add. Units from miles around. They might even nuke it. He shudders. A part of him still connected to crow spirit feels the army of ravening bodies back there twitching like worms at the hunger swelling within them, the longing. Wouldn't it be better if we all stuck together? Superferret asks timidly. A chorus of agreement. Ruben stands rooted to the spot, but they crowd around him. Superferret clambers up his chest and snakes around his shoulders. What'd they call you? Before, I mean. Rainbow Crow, Ruben says. Then we can be Rainbow Crow's heroes. Like a punch in the gut, Ruben remembers the paper crane kid. Once, in a rare burst of childlike excitement, she'd scribbled a drawing of two stick figures holding hands. You and me, she'd explained carefully. Our comic book, issue one. Older faces he sees, too drowned fathomlessly in a drunken stupor over the years. Brothers, mother and father, friends. When he was young and given to daydreaming, he imagined too, in that cantina where he scrubbed glasses into the empty hours with the contraband arcade machines. You could almost see the moon setting over the horizon like the end of the world, a soft vision filled with laughter and light, the same world Crow Spirit must have seen as she perched on his broken body as she twined her soul with his on that night. All here. All saved. He couldn't have done it alone. But with a team. A lump rises in Ruben's throat as he raises his head from the ragged crowd, glimpses a ray of sun piercing the clouds of dark birds circling above. Maybe they could find enough courage to save her, too.
1: That was Andrea Kriz's Rainbow Crow's Heroes, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter at Aleph Baker. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Anthony.
0: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance? Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly
2: coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
1: Our second story this evening is a classic from Mary E. Wilkins Freeman. Freeman began writing stories and verse for children while still a teenager to help support her family and was quickly successful. Her career as a short story writer launched in 1881 when she took first place in a short story contest with her submission, The Ghost Family. When the supernatural caught her interest, the result was a group of short stories which combined domestic realism with supernaturalism, and these have proven very influential. During her life, she produced more than two dozen volumes of published short stories and novels. Her stories deal mostly with New England life, and are considered among the best of their kind. In April 1926, Freeman became the first recipient of the William Dean Howells Medal for Distinction in Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Freeman died at the age of 77. Children of the night, lend me your ears for Mary E. Wilkins Freeman's A Symphony in Lavender.
4: It was quite late in the evening, dark and rainy, when I arrived. And I suppose the first object in wear, outside of my immediate personal surroundings, which arrested my attention, was the Munson house. When I looked out of my window the next morning, it loomed up directly opposite, across the road, dark and moist from the rain of the night before. There were so many elm trees in front of it and in front of the house I was in that the little pools of rainwater, still standing in the road here and there, did not glisten and shine at all, although the sun was bright and quite high. The house itself stood back far enough to allow of a good square yard in front and was raised from the street level the height of a face wall. Three or four steps led up to the front walk. On each side of the steps, growing near the edge of the wall, was an enormous lilac tree in full blossom. I could see them tossing their purple clusters between the elm branches. There was quite a wind blowing that morning. A hedge of lilacs, kept low by constant cropping, began at the blooming lilac trees and reached around the rest of the yard at the top of the face wall. The yard was gay with flowers, laid out in fantastic little beds, all bordered trimly with box. The house was one of those square, solid, white-painted, green-blinded edifices which marked the wealth and importance of the dweller therein a half-century or so ago, and still cast a dim halo of respect over his memory. It had no beauty in itself— being boldly plain and glaring, like all of its kind. But the green waving bows of the elms and lilacs and the undulating shadows they cast toned it down and gave it an air of coolness and quiet and lovely reserve. I began to feel a sort of pleasant, idle curiosity concerning it as I stood there at my chamber window, and after breakfast, when I had gone into the sitting-room whose front windows also face that way, I took occasion to ask my hostess, who had come in with me, who lived there. Of course it is nobody I have ever seen or heard of, said I, but I was looking at the house this morning and have taken a fancy to know. Mrs. Leonard gazed reflectively across at the house, and then at me. It was an odd way she always had before speaking. There's a maiden lady lives there, she answered at length, turning her gaze from me to the house again. All alone. That is, all alone except old Margaret. She's always been in the family, ever since Caroline was a baby, I guess. A faithful old creature has ever lived. She's pretty feeble now. I reckon Caroline has to do pretty much all the work, and I don't suppose she's much company, or much of anything but a care. There she comes now. Who? said I, feeling a little bewildered. Why, Caroline. Caroline Munson? A slim, straight little woman, with a white pitcher in her hand, was descending the stone steps between the blooming lilac trees opposite. She had on a lilac-colored calico dress and a white apron. She wore no hat or bonnet, and her gray hair seemed to be arranged in a cluster of soft little curls at the top of her head. Her face, across the street, looked like that of a woman of forty, fair and pleasing. "'She's going down to Mrs. Barnes after milk,' Mrs. Leonard explained. "'She always goes herself, every morning just about this time. "'She never sends old Margaret. "'I reckon she ain't fit to go,' I guess she can do some things about the house, but when it comes to traveling outside, Caroline has to do it herself. Then Mrs. Leonard was called into the kitchen, and I thought over the information, at once vague and definite, I had received, and watched Miss Caroline Munson walk down the shady street. She had a pretty, gentle gait. About a week later, I received an invitation to take tea with her, I was probably never more surprised in my life, as I had not the slightest acquaintance with her. I had sometimes happened to watch her morning pilgrimages down the street after milk, and occasionally had observed her working over her flower beds in the front yard. That was all so far as I was concerned, and I did not suppose she knew there was such a person as myself in existence. But Mrs. Leonard, who was also bidden, explained it. "'It's Caroline's way,' said she. "'She's always had a sort of mania for asking folks to tea. "'Why, I reckon there's hardly a fortnight on an average the year-round "'but what she invites somebody or other to tea. "'I suppose she gets kind of dull, "'and there's a little excitement about it, getting ready for company. "'Anyhow, she must like it or she wouldn't ask people. "'She probably has heard you were going to board here this summer.' Where's a little place, you know, and folks hear everything about each other, and thought she would invite you over with me. You had better go. You'll enjoy it. It's a nice place to go to, and she's a beautiful cook. Or Margaret is. I don't know which does the cooking, but I guess they both have a hand in it. Anyhow, you'll have a pleasant time. We'll take our sewing and go early, by three o'clock. That's the way people go out to take tea and wear. So the next afternoon, at three o'clock, Mrs. Leonard and I sallied across the street to Miss Caroline Munson's. She met us at the door in response to a tap of the old-fashioned knocker. Her manner of greeting us was charming from its very quaintness. She hardly said three words, but showed at the same time a simple courtesy and a pleased shyness, like a child overcome with the delight of a tea party in her honor. She ushered us into a beautiful old parlor on the right of the hall, and we seated ourselves with our sewing. The conversation was not very brisk nor very general so far as I was concerned. There was scarcely any topic of common interest to the three of us, probably. Mrs. Leonard was one of those women who converse only of matters pertaining to themselves or their own circle of acquaintances, and seldom digress. Miss Munson I could not judge of as to conversational habits, of course. She seemed now to be merely listening with a sort of gentle interest, scarcely saying a word herself to Mrs. Leonard's remarks. I was a total stranger to where and where people, and consequently could neither talk nor listen to much purpose. But I was interested in observing Miss Munson. She was a nice person to observe, for if she was conscious of being an object of scrutiny, she did not show it. Her eyes never flashed up and met mine fixed upon her, with a suddenness startling and embarrassing to both of us. I could stare at her as guilelessly and properly as I could at a flower. Indeed, Miss Munson did make me think of a flower, and of one prevalent in her front yard, too, a lilac. There was that same dull bloom about her, and a shy, antiquated grace. A lilac always does seem a little older than some other flowers. Miss Munson, I could now see, was probably nearer fifty than forty. There were little lines and shadows in her face that one could not discern across the street. It seemed to me that she must have been very lovely in her youth. With that sort of loveliness which does not demand attention, but holds it with no effort. An exquisite, delicate young creature she ought to have been, and had been, unless her present appearance told lies. Lilac seemed to be her favourite colour for gowns, for she wore that afternoon a delicious old fashioned lilac muslin that looked as if it had been laid away in lavender every winter for the last thirty years. The waist was cut surplus fashion, and she wore a dainty lace handkerchief tucked into it. Take it altogether, I suppose I never spent a pleasanter afternoon in my life, although it was pleasant in a quiet, uneventful sort of way. There was an atmosphere of gentle grace and comfort about everything, about Miss Munson, about the room, and about the lookout from the high, deep-seated windows. There was not one vivid tint in that parlor. Everything had the dimness of age over it. All the brightness was gone out of the carpet. Large shadowy figures sprawled over the floor, their indistinctness giving them the suggestion of grace, and the polish on the mahogany furniture was too dull to reflect the light. The gilded scrolls on the wallpaper no longer shone, and over some of the old engravings on the walls, a half-transparent film that looked like mist had spread. Outside, a cool green shadow lay over the garden, and soft, lazy puffs of lilac-scented air came in at the windows. Oh, it was so lovely, and it was so little trouble to enjoy it. I liked, too, the tea which came later, The dining room was as charming in its way as the parlor, large and dark and solid, with some beautiful quaint pieces of furniture in it. The china was pink and gold, and I fancied to myself that Miss Munson's grandmother had spun the table linen and put it away in a big chest with rose leaves between the folds. I do believe the surroundings and the circumstances imparted a subtle flavor to everything I tasted, which gave rise to something higher than mere gustatory delight. Or maybe it was my mood. But it certainly seemed to me that I had never before enjoyed a tea so much. After that day, Miss Munson and I became very well acquainted. I got into the habit of running over there very often. She seldom came to see me. It was tacitly understood between us that it was pleasanter for me to do the visiting. I do not know how she felt towards me. I think she liked me. But I began to feel an exceeding, even a loving, interest in her. All that I could think of sometimes, when with her, was a person walking in a garden and getting continually delicious little sniffs of violets so that he certainly knew they were near him, although they were hidden somewhere under the leaves, and he could not see them. There would not be a day that Miss Munson would not say things that were so many little hints of a rare sweetness and beauty of nature, which her shyness and quietness did not let appear all at once. She was rather chary always of giving very broad glimpses of herself, I was always more or less puzzled and evaded by her, though she was evidently a sincere, childlike woman with a liking for simple pleasures. She took genuine delight in picking a little bunch of flowers in her garden for a neighbor and in giving those little tea parties. She was religious in an innocent, unquestioning way, too. I oftener than not found an open Bible near her when I came in, and she talked about praying as simply as one would about breathing. But the day before I left where, she told me a very peculiar story, by which she displayed herself to me all at once in a fuller light, although she revealed such a character that I was, in one way, nonetheless puzzled. She and I were sitting in her parlor. She was feeling sad about my going, and perhaps that led her to confide in me. Anyway, she looked up, suddenly, after a little silence. Do you, she said, believe in dreams? That is a question I can't answer truthfully, I replied, laughing. I don't really know whether I believe in dreams or not. I don't know either, she said, slowly, and she shuddered a little. I have a mind to tell you, she went on, about a dream I had once, and about something that happened to me afterwards. I never did tell anyone, and I believe I would like to. That is, if you would like to have me, she asked, as timidly as a child afraid of giving trouble. I assured her that I would, and, after a little pause, she told me this. I was about twenty-two, she said, and Father and mother had been dead one for the other six years. I was living alone here with Margaret, as I have ever since. I have thought sometimes that it was my living alone so much and not going about with other girls more that made me dream as much as I did, but I don't know. I used always to have a great many dreams and some of them seemed as if they must mean something. But this particular one, in itself and in its effect on my afterlife, was very singular. It was in spring, and the lilacs were just in bloom when I dreamed it. I thought I was walking down the road there under the elm trees. I had on a lilac muslin gown, and I carried a basket of flowers on my arm. They were mostly white, or else the very faintest pink. Lilies and roses. I had gone down the street a little way when I saw a young man coming towards me. He had on a broad-brimmed soft hat and a velvet coat and carried something that looked odd under his arm. When he came nearer, I could see that he had a handsome, dark face and that he was carrying an artist's easel. When he reached me, he stopped and looked down into my face and then at my basket of flowers. I stopped, too. I could not seem to help it in my dream and gazed down at the ground. I was afraid to look at him and I trembled so that the lilies and roses in my basket quivered. Finally he spoke. Won't you give me one of your flowers, he said. Just one? I gathered courage to glance up at him then, and when his eyes met mine, it did seem to me that I wanted to give him one of those flowers more than anything else in the world. I looked into my basket, and had my fingers on the stem of the finest lily there, when something came whirring and fanning by my face and settled on my shoulder. And when I turned my head, with my heart beating loud, there was a white dove. But somehow, I seemed in my dream to forget all about the dove in a minute, and I looked away in the young man's face again and lifted the lily from the basket as I did so. But his face did not look to me as it did before, though I still wanted to give him the lily just as much. I stood still, gazing at him for a moment. There was, in my dream, a sort of fascination over me, which would not let me take my eyes from him. As I gazed, his face changed more and more to me, till finally, I cannot explain it, it looked at once beautiful and repulsive. I wanted at once to give him the lily, and would have died rather than give it to him. And I turned and fled, with my basket of flowers and my dove on my shoulder, and a great horror of something. I did not know what. In my heart. Then I woke up all of a tremble. Miss Munson stopped. What do you think of the dream? she said in a few minutes. Do you think it is possible that it could have had any especial significance? Or should you think it merely a sleeping vagary of a romantic, imaginative girl? I think that would depend entirely upon the after-events, I answered. They might or might not prove its significance. Do you think so? she said eagerly. Well, it seemed to me that they did, but the worst of it has been, I have never been quite sure. Never quite sure. But I will tell you, and you shall judge. A year from the time I dreamed that dream, I actually met that same man one morning in the street. I had on my lilac gown, and I held a sprig of lilac in my hand. I had broken it off the bush as I came along. He almost stopped for a second when he came up to me and looked down into my face. I was terribly startled for I recognized at once the man of my dream, and I can't tell you how horrible and uncanny it all seemed for a minute. There was the same handsome dark face, there with the broad hat and the velvet coat and the easel under the arm. Well, he passed on, and I did. But I was in a flutter all day, and his eyes seemed to be looking into mine continually. A few days afterwards, he called upon me with Mrs. Graves, a lady who used to live in Ware and take boarders. She moved away some years ago. I learned that he was an artist. His name was... No, I will not tell you his name. He is from your city and well-known. He had engaged board with Mrs. Graves for the summer. After that, there was scarcely a day, but I saw him. We were both entirely free to seek each other's society, and we were together a great deal. He used to take me sketching with him, and he would come here at all hours of the day as unconcernedly as a brother might. He would sit beside me in the parlor and watch me sew, and in the kitchen and watch me cook. He was very boyish and unconventional in his ways, and I used to think it was charming, We soon grew to care a great deal about each other, of course, although he said nothing about it to me for a long time. I knew from the first that I loved him dearly, but from the first there was, as there was in my dream, a kind of horror of him, along with the love. It kept me from being entirely happy. The night before he went away, he spoke. We had been to walk and were standing here at my door. He asked me to marry him. I looked up in his face and felt just as I did in my dream about giving him the flower, when all of a sudden his face looked different to me, just as it did in the dream. I cannot explain it. It was as if I saw no more of the kindness and the love in it. Only something else. Evil. And the same horror came over me. I don't know how I looked to him as I stood gazing up at him, but he turned very pale and started back. My God, Caroline, he said. What is it? I don't know what I said, but it must have expressed my sudden repulsion very strongly. For, after a few bitter words, he left me. And I went into the house. I never saw him again. I have seen his name in the papers, and that is all. Now I want to know, Miss Munson went on, If you think that my dream was really sent to me as a warning or that I fancied it all and wrecked no, I won't say wrecked dulled the happiness of my whole life for a nervous whim She looked questioningly at me an expression at once serious and pitiful on her delicate face I hardly knew what to say It was obvious that I could form no correct opinion unless I knew the man. I wondered if I did. There was an artist of about the right age whom I thought of. If he was the one, well, I think Miss Munson was right. She saw that I hesitated. Never mind, she said rising with her usual quiet, gentle smile on her lips. You don't know any more than I do, and I never shall know in this world. All I hope is that it was what God meant, and not what I imagined. We won't talk any more about it. I've liked to tell you, for some reason or other, that is all. Now I am going to take you into the garden, and pick your last posy for you. After I had gone down the stone steps with my hands full of verbenas and pansies, I turned and looked up at her, standing so mild and sweet between the lilac trees, and said goodbye again. That was the last time I saw her. The next summer, when I came to wear... The blinds on the front of the Munson house were all closed, and the little flower beds in the front yard were untended. Only the lilacs were in blossom, for they had the immortal spring for their gardener. Miss Munson died last winter, said Mrs. Leonard, looking reflectively across the street. She was laid out in a lilac colored cashmere gown. It was her request. She always wore lilac, you know. Well, I do believe that Caroline Munson, if she is an angel, and I suppose she is, doesn't look much more different from what she did before than those lilacs over there do from last year's ones.
1: That was Mary E. Wilkins Freeman's A Symphony in Lavender, as read by Amy Paunessa. Amy Paunessa has been narrating as a hobby for two years now. In addition to producing a horror movie review podcast, which she also hosts for the past four years, she has also appeared on Knife Point Horror and the Alexandria Archives. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, The hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. As a reminder, story submissions close August 15th. So if you've got something you'd like to submit, hurry over to TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. And if you haven't already, we'd love your support over at Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to but it certainly isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror for all of us. And a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage, tales to Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with help from Meredith Morgenstern and Julia Zellman, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we twist your mind with more Tales to Terrify.